I'm Andrew Kayard, and you're listening to the story of vine stock transmission around Australia from 1788 to the present day. It is one of the key foundations of Australia's wine story, and it reflects a marvellous ambition of our early forefathers and mothers who genuinely believed in a grand future for Australia. This is the story of vine stock transmission in Australia. For many years, I have been living the story of Australian wine through old newspaper articles, diaries, transcripts and books. I've moved forwards and backwards through 250 years of time travel, trying to grapple with the past and to make sense of what we're all about today. It's become an obsession of sorts, and I don't quite know when it will ever stop. But I'm in completely in awe of the story and wonder at the depth and richness of the Australian wine ambition. Wine, of course, is just a fragment of Australia's extraordinary history, but I had no idea that this journey of research and learning about the ambitions of our forefathers and mothers would reveal so much about who we are and what we stand for as a country. As a child, I was fascinated by the great voyages of discovery, Charles Darwin, natural history and fine art, and funnily enough, I was also interested in botany and studied at school, although it was offered to boys who were generally a bit thick and unexceptional. In fact, I should say at the very outset that I come from an arts rather than a scientific background. My understanding of physics and chemistry is pretty basic. But having gone through Roseworthy Agricultural College in South Australia during the 1980s and lived a life completely immersed in wine, I'm really very interested in winemaking and viticulture and understand the concepts extremely well. But when I started to investigate the transmission of grapevine material to and within Australia, I took more of an artistic journey rather than a precise scientific voyage. It hasn't been a straight line, and I've always returned back in time to link the dots together. And what I found was a remarkable history that was completely interconnected to the aspirations and scientific enlightenment of the 19th century. For me, it was like unlocking a door and finding a cupboard full of long-forgotten hidden treasures. The Georgian and Victorian ages were a fascinating period of international expansion and grand ambitions. While I'm mindful of the dark side of colonialisation, which in itself is harrowing and difficult to reconcile, we should not write off or diminish the achievements, great or small, of the people from all walks of life who really gave their lives to this expansive and truly beautiful country. Many people will know that Australia possesses hundreds of acres of very old vines dating back to the 1840s. There are still surviving vines from the 19th century in New South Wales, Victoria, South Australia and Western Australia. And considering the events of the last 200 years, it is amazing that they have all survived. Almost everything has been thrown at these vineyards. Drought, bushfires, botanic pandemics, economic slumps, depression, vine pool schemes, bad marriages, divorce, family squabbles. But grapevines are generally quite hardy, except when subjugated to vandalism or neglect. Although it's not the oldest vineyard in South Australia, that beautiful patch of vines at Nardenburg in the Barossa's Eden Valley, for me, stands for something so much bigger than generations of family enterprise. Henschke Hill of Grace Shiraz is living proof of resilience and how we as an industry can build on the efforts and visions of our forefathers. And all of it goes back before Captain Arthur Phillip 
landed at Botany Bay with his entourage of soldiers and convicts in 1788 to create a convict settlement. So I'm going to take you back a little earlier to the 1760s and 1770s to give a bit of context. This was the beginning of the Georgian age, well before King George III fell into a state of madness. It was a time of enlightenment, not seen since the Renaissance 200 years earlier. Sapire Aude, dare to think for yourself, captured the mood of the times. It ignited society and propelled the middle class forward at a phenomenal rate. The Rights of Man, written by Thomas Paine, was read by a million people on both sides of the Atlantic and promoted revolutionary thoughts. The American War of Independence and later the French Revolution changed social structures, but not without extraordinary turbulence, death and destruction. And these radical thoughts also extended into Great Britain, which saw a progression of parliamentary and social reforms, including anti-slavery acts. But that did not stop transportation of convicts or the misery of the poor. Behind all of this political argy-bargy was an obsession for wealth creation. The discovery of great riches in Africa and the East, India and China particularly, fueled an arms race between the great powers of the time, particularly the Dutch, France, Britain, Spain and Prussia. And behind every scientific voyage of discovery, there was an economic purpose of how new lands and materials could be harnessed. Empires were built on economic, political and military power, and Britain had the most powerful and dominating navy throughout this period. Not even Napoleon Bonaparte, with his continental blockade, could diminish this maritime strength. When the explorer Captain James Cook sailed into the Pacific in 1769 to witness the transit of Venus and to find new lands, he took with him a young, rich baronet, the botanist Sir Joseph Banks, and an entourage of artists and scientists, including Daniel Solander, a protégé of the great biologist, zoologist and taxonomist Carl Linnaeus, to observe, describe and catalogue thousands of plants and animal specimens. This was the golden age of discovery and the Linnaean classification system, and the world was opening up to new possibilities and uses for raw materials. When Australia was reached for the first time by Captain James Cook in 1770, it created great excitement among the scientific world. But Sir Joseph Banks was also a mercantilist, and aside from his presidency of the Royal Society, he was a member of the Royal Society of Arts and Manufacturers, which was established to embolden enterprise, enlarge science, refine art, improve manufacturing capabilities, and extend Britain's commerce. And this was, of course, interlinked with ambitions of a British empire and establishing secure trade routes with India and China. So the foundation of a convict settlement in 1788 was a means to an end, but it wasn't the prime objective. In the late 1780s, it was completely unthinkable that well-heeled British families would consider settlement in New South Wales. This strange, inhospitable country promised very little except certain isolation, unbearable hardship and early death. The place really had little attraction except for military careerists and general opportunists on the take. On the other hand, Australia's vast agricultural and mineral resources would become more obvious as a source of wealth with the invention of steam engines and the Industrial Revolution, 
which was starting to take place in the early 1800s. Although the big picture is endlessly fascinating, I need to bring your mind back to the planning behind the settlement of New South Wales. The provisioning of the first fleets was meticulously planned because sending a large population to the other side of the world was like sending a man or woman to the moon. Sir Joseph Banks was intimately involved with the provisioning of the first fleet, which comprised six convict transports, three storeships and two navy vessels, including the flagship HMS Sirius. All up, the first fleet carried 1,300 people, including convicts, marines and various family members, including children. So the undertaking was enormous for that time. The vessels were stuffed with supplies, including plant material, notably shrubs, vines, citrus, fruit trees, vegetables, grains and seeds, and hemp, flax, rhubarb, tobacco, maize and even acorns were provided with the aim of starting farms to feed the settlement. Among the supplies also included a prefabricated government house, where it was assembled near Farm Cove, where Australia's first Vetus vinifera grapevines were planted in 1788. Historians have long written about the First Fleet and its journey out to New South Wales, and we know that Captain Arthur Phillip brought vine cuttings with him. Most narratives, historical narratives, suggest that vines were only picked up along the way, including Rio de Janeiro and the Cape Colony. Whether this is the case or not, it is certain that vine stock material from England was provisioned very early on, and possibly as early as the First Fleet's. For instance, it was reported in December 1790, that's just two years after first settlement, well not even two, th two years after first settlement, that 600 vine cuttings from His Majesty's Garden were planted at Norfolk Island, a settlement, a satellite settlement 1,673 kilometres northeast of Sydney in the Pacific Ocean. So what does this mean? Well, it means one hell of a lot. It means that Australia's early vineyards were also based on English-grown plant material, vine plant material. His Majesty's Gardens at Kew, west of London, was King George III's Royal Botanic Gardens, and it was the engine room of Georgian economic botany. The gardens, which comprised the most diverse collection of plant material in the world, were enriched by the garden superintendent, William Ayton, and his patron, Sir Joseph Banks. Amongst the collection was vine stock material, including black cluster, that's Pinot Mernier, and the Burgundy grape, and that's Pinot Noir. These were in fact common walled garden type grape varieties and could be found in many gardens around England. Almost every wealthy landholder had collections of exotic plants, walled gardens, arboretums or hothouses. Among them, was the Earl of Coventry's Croom Park in Worcestershire, designed by Lancelot Capability Brown, the great English landscape gardener, and Charles Hamilton's Paynes Hill Vineyard in Surrey, which also comprised two sorts of burgundy grape. It is known that Sir Joseph Banks and his botanist, Daniel Solander, visited Paynes Hill in 1781, and they would not have returned to London without cuttings for the Royal Botanic Gardens. These blokes were serial economic botanists after all, so there is a compelling thread 
that links this vineyard with the collection at Kew. So aside from grapevines sourced from Madeira, the Canary Islands, Rio de Janeiro and the Cape, I am in no doubt that England is a source of vine stock material, whether by seed or by cuttings, and was carried out by Australia's earliest settlers. Other early varieties that came from England included Stillwood's Sweetwater, which was named after Mr Stillwood from the Barley Mow Tavern near Turnham Green in England, believe it or not. The multiple synonyms for grape varieties and selections highlights the chaos and difficulty of tracking down origins. On the other hand, many of the very early varieties like Sweetwater, that's Chasselas, Green Grape, that's Semillon, Pontac, Chenin Blanc, Musket of Alexandra, known as Honeypoot, were sourced elsewhere, especially the Cape. There is absolutely no question that grape cuttings were brought from South Africa to Australia on many occasions during the first 50 or 60 years of settlement. Sir Joseph Banks sent out one of his gardeners and plant hunters, James Masson, to the Cape Colony to hunt for plant material, and he helped Arthur Phillip and his officers in procuring more suitable acclimatised plant material, including vine stock, on their way out to New South Wales. Many prominent settlers visited and recorded their visits to Cape Vineyards, especially the nearby Constantia Vineyard, a popular destination for visitors and a supplier of wine for the St Helena Island outpost in the Atlantic, where the exiled Napoleon Bonaparte enjoyed its qualities. That property, by the way, was operated by a slave workforce until 1838. Much of the vine stock that was first brought out to New South Wales did not flourish, and these included Pontac, and that's Tenturia. As the decades progressed and an organised Australian wine industry developed, the sourcing of vine stock changed. Recently, the South Australian Vignerons Association celebrated 180 years, but it erroneously declared that an 1841 importation of vine stock from the Cape kick-started the industry. This is actually probably not the case. The cuttings arrived far too late in the season, after a cock-up of transportation. It is doubtful they played any great part in the establishment of the industry. Although many earlier settlers arrived with Cape Colony vine cuttings, they discovered much better material was already in Australia. The Penfolds family, and the Rennell family especially, experienced this after arriving in South Australia. But perhaps the most lasting successes of South African grapevine material in Australia are Semillon and Chenin Blanc, both white grape varieties known as green grape and steen. At this time, around 93% of the plantings in the Cape were actually green grape, or Grundriff, also known as Semillon. Although there is a surviving vineyard in the Barossa going back to around 1848 that is Semillon, Personally, I think it is doubtful and more likely that the material for this vineyard came from New South Wales. The story of Semillon is particularly romantic. Somewhere in the late 1820s, after 1827, Thomas Shepherd, a really important colonial nurseryman from Hackney in London, who almost certainly collaborated with Legidius Nursery, also in Hackney near London, discovered a particularly juicy and richly flavoured grape growing in the backyard of a Piermont dwelling near Sydney Harbour. Delighted with its greenness and health, he pulled out his pocket knife 
and stole some cuttings. And this is the vine stock that became known as Shepherd's Riesling or Hunter River Riesling, now better known as Semillon today. This genetic material was first sent to the Hunter Valley by Thomas Shepherd somewhere around 1830 and was planted by James King at Irrawang just as the Hunter Valley wine industry was taking off. Although those earliest vineyards have not survived because of neglect or economic reasons, the genetic material has proliferated and Hunter Valley Semillon is an established and popular wine style. The oldest vineyards owned by the Tyrrells go back to 1908, but its early story shows that luck played a massive part in those early days. And by the way, Chenin Blanc proved to be very successful in Western Australia and there are 1933 plantings in South Australia. So the South African connection still remains, but this was only established in the 1950s when the varieties were properly identified. It is also quite possible that genetic material of other varieties still exist, notably Musket of Alexandria, which is also known as Honeyput. This was first brought out apparently by Sir Thomas Brisbane in 1822, but frankly this could have been much earlier. But the thing that gets me really excited with the Australian vine stock story is how so closely it follows the political and social events of the times. When you consider that wine is hardly a British pastime, there was a very early recognition that wine would become a really important part of the colonial economy. Drinking wine was a much safer thing to do than drinking water at the times. But even so, it took some imagination to see Britain as a nation of wine drinkers. It's actually quite surprising how much wine did come into New South Wales during the early days. Traders arrived in Sydney with Cape wine, which was pretty disgusting stuff, but at least less ardent than spirits. And occasionally ships after the end of hostilities with France arrived from Europe with consignments of Bordeaux. Cabernet and Sauvignon and Syrah wines were enjoyed in Sydney well before the varieties actually were planted in Australia. But trade was strictly controlled and the East India Company had a monopoly which really annoyed some of the very early protagonists and settlers. And many landowners and business people flouted these draconian controls and laws. Among those was the Scot John MacArthur, who arrived in Sydney with his wife Elizabeth in 1790 as a young lieutenant in the New South Wales Corps, the military garrison set up in Sydney and surrounding settlements including Parramatta. In actual fact, he landed up being granted 100 acres of land in 1793 near Parramatta and planted a small vineyard. Argumentative and ruthless in ambitions, he was severely disliked by the government, especially after duelling with his commanding officer, William Patterson, in 1801. And by the way, William Patterson was the first person to capture a live koala. John MacArthur was sent back to England for a court-martial and he used that opportunity to promote his ideas of establishing a wool-growing enterprise. And during that time, he met and fell out with Sir Joseph Banks, who by this time was New South Wales' de facto administrator. This would cause all sorts of serious problems down the track. But MacArthur's fearless energy and energetic ambitions captured the attentions of Lord Camden, who was the Secretary, Secretary of State and War in the enlightened William Pitt government. And so MacArthur was granted a large tract of land in a richly fertile area known as Cow Pastures, some 67 kilometres southwest of Sydney, known as Camden today. He was initially granted 10,000 acres, but this scaled back to 5,000 acres, 
to put Sir Joseph Banks and Governor King's unjointed noses back into place. Aside from bringing back a flock of merino sheep, he also brought back grapevines, including grizzly frontignac, which I love that term, but of course that's frontignac gris, a variety that was extensively grown in English war gardens, including Scion House. Camden Park would later become the centre of Australia's 19th century wool-growing merino bloodstock, and later the most important vineyard and nursery in the colonies. But by 1806, the enriched, powerful Maverick MacArthur was in trouble again with authorities, particularly Governor William Bly, a brilliant naval officer and a protégé of Sir Joseph Banks. He's also best remembered for his role in the Mutiny of the Bounty and his remarkable story of survival and navigation skills in an open rowboat to Batavia. But he was also overly hard-nosed and cold-hearted. He loathed John MacArthur and everything he represented. He was keen to end the rampant corruption in the New South Wales Corps, which was based on trading monopolies and bartering system, based on the currency of distilled spirits known broadly as rum. From the standards of today, John MacArthur was tough and corrupt. He was at the centre of this trade and had managed to accumulate, accumulate significant wealth at a rapid rate, Despite his visionary energy, he was also a gangster type whose wealth, power and web of influence protected him, even when the government came calling for his head. When John MacArthur was arrested on the 26th of January 1808 for breaching port regulations, it triggered off a coup d'etat known today as the Rum Rebellion. Governor Bly was arrested and John MacArthur was installed as colonial secretary with Major George Johnson, the self-appointed New South Wales de facto governor. The rebellion caused a massive uproar, and many people believed the main protagonist would lose their lives for it. So when John MacArthur was called back to London to account for himself, he took with him his Australian-born sons, James and William, so they could be educated at rugby school in England. It took a while to become exonerated, but John MacArthur used this time to secure new patronage and friends. Conveniently, MacArthur's wool-growing business was sufficiently large enough to start sending bales of wool back to England with great success. The Continental Blockade highlighted the need for alternative sources for England's woolen mills. Among those contacts was Hugh Percy, the second Duke of Northumberland, a former general in the British Army, whose was an important figure in the American War of Independence. He had a great interest in agriculture, wool growing and economic botany. He had actually followed the political fallout from the Rum Rebellion in 1808 and openly supported its leader, Major George Johnston, who served under him during the American War of Independence. His extensive landscape gardens around Sion House near the Royal Botanic Gardens at Kew were filled with exotic plants and this would further expand with the development of heated glasshouses. In 1815, just before heading back to Australia, John MacArthur nipped across the channel with his sons on a mini grand tour. They headed to Paris and arrived on the same day as Napoleon Bonaparte's return to power, known as the Hundred Days and shortly before the Battle of Waterloo. They actually witnessed the commotion and excitement of Napoleon's triumphant return to Paris before heading off down to Burgundy to observe farming practices. 
But sensing personal danger for his family, he soon after crossed with his sons into Switzerland at Vervey to sit out the political unrest. After Napoleon's defeat, they, the MacArthur family, all three of them, travelled through the south of France picking up vine cuttings and other plant material to plant out at their property in Camden. A nursery business could be a great source of wealth back in New South Wales. Although the cuttings were fully loaded up into a specially made greenhouse on the convict transport the Lord Eldon and then taken to New South Wales and planted out at Camden Park, the vines proved to not to be the same cuttings sourced by the MacArthur's. The collection had been given to a nurseryman in London who obviously stuffed up or some other skullduggery had happened. According to William MacArthur, the only new vine material to come into Australia in 1817 with that particular collection were Black Hamburg and Black Frontignan. It's hard to imagine the disappointment and anger after the discovery was made in 1820, after the vines came into full bearing, but it spurred the MacArthur's on to support, in fact sponsor, James Busby's mission to Spain and France in the early 1830s. You have just listened to part one of my four-part story about grapevines in Australia from the earliest days of settlement to the present day. This podcast is produced by Andrew Kayard and Christoph Priddle at Annesley Street Studios in Sydney. Go to part two to listen to the next instalment.